Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is The Guardian. This must work for the US. This must work for the UK as much as it must work for Australia. And that is a sense that um, is clearly felt in all the conversations I've had with uh, Ben Wallace in the UK, with Lloyd Austin in the US. Um, and, and, and to me, that's what gives me a sense of assurance that this is going to play out in the way that we, we want it to play out. Hello everyone, I'm Daniel Hurst, Guardian Australia's Foreign Affairs and Defence Correspondent. I'm in the pod cave this week because it's been a huge week in defence and foreign affairs, it must be said, uh, with Australia unveiling a plan to spend up to $368 billion on a nuclear-powered submarine program over the next few decades. I'm speaking with the Deputy Prime Minister and the Defence Minister Richard Miles, who is at the centre of all of those decisions. There are almost limitless questions about how this project is to be achieved, what it means for Australia's place in the world, what it means for our relationship with China and our allies and partners, the US and the UK. So I was keen to take up all of those issues on behalf of our audience. Deputy PM, thanks very much for speaking with The Guardian. Uh, It's been a really big week. Can you just step me through on a personal level what it felt like for you how did you sort of process the gravity of the moment, the crossroads Australia's at and that you're setting us on this week? It's a good question. I, I mean, I certainly feel the gravity of it and I feel the responsibility of it. Um, it, it is a, it's a hugely significant step that the, the country is taking. And you know, as we were watching on Tuesday morning, the um, announcement being made from San Diego um, with the president and two prime ministers, you, you, you got a sense of, um, of of how significant it was. And, and for my part, you know, th- th- this really does um, feel like the biggest leap that we will have made in military technology since the end of the Second World War, arguably ever. Um, the idea that we will be just the seventh country in the world to operate um, a nuclear-powered submarine puts us in company in terms of military capability that we would never have been in before. Um, And so to be announcing that, to be describing it, to be uh, trying to explain that to the Australian people uh, felt like a, a hugely significant um, thing to do and um, I mean obviously w- one gets involved in public life and in government to be a part of uh, steps like this but it's certainly um, the, the weight of it I have felt through through the course of the week and, and the responsibility of it. 
Now, you've spoken about this capability putting a question mark in any adversary's mind. Given we're spending up to $368 billion on this in the long term, can you be honest with people that this is about China and that these submarines will spend more time in the South China Sea and, if necessary, have that capability to be able to strike the mainland? How would you sort of answer that? Well, I, I, I would answer it not by reference to a specific country, which won't surprise you, but I would reference it, I'd answer it by reference to our needs. Um, and, um, you know, our, our strategic circumstances are, are just different to what they were, you know, in, in the 1990s, for example, where our economy is much more integrated with the world and integrated with our region. And the practicality of that means that so much of our prosperity is based on ships going back and forth. Um, and, uh, and, and, and as a result, our national interest lies much more beyond the border of our continent than it ever has. And, and it's really for that, the, it's for that reason that we need this capability going forward. And, and, and in that sense, that's something that we can confidently predict over the course of the next few decades. I mean, the, 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 the particular geostrategic shape of the world um, will, will ebb and flow over that period of time. But what we absolutely know is that we are going to be more engaged with the world, more connected with the world going forward, and therefore have this ongoing need to be able to uh, protect that connection. Now, when you, you're thinking about that, it's, it's why we then use language such as what we need to be able to do is to hold an adversary at, at risk further from our shores. In other words, to give pause for thought for anybody who might want to um, interrupt those, those trade routes, for example. Um, and, and that's really why we, we are seeking to have this capability. And yes, um, the strategic landscape of the here and now is, is, is relevant. Um, it is a very complex time. Um, we are watching the, the rules of the road, the global rules-based order being placed under stress, obviously in Eastern Europe, but also in the Indo-Pacific as well. And, and that does happen um, against the backdrop of the, the largest conventional military build-up that we've seen anywhere in the world since the end of the Second World War. And, and, and those things do um, shape the need, but the need fundamentally is derived from um, our future and our ongoing needs. And I suppose the final point in all of that is when you, when you think all of that through, where you end up is this. Um, the defence of Australia in, in, in this day and age now lies in the collective security of our region and in the maintenance of the rules of the road. Like that, that's actually how we defend the way of life that we enjoy um, here within our borders. Um, and, and so we need um, a defence force which can um, give effect to that, that strategic posture. And how do you sort of engage with the classic security dilemma that, you know, we're, we're taking steps to increase our security, but it can trigger a sort of counter-reaction? So what makes you so confident that this will actually contribute to deterring China or contributing to a strategic equilibrium rather than prompting an escalation or rather than prompting uh, countries such as China to step up their activities further? Mm. Well, well, again, a really good question. When I, when I attended um, Shang, the Shangri-La conference in Singapore back in June of last year, which was very soon after we'd come to power, um, a point I made there was was not that that we didn't acknowledge the right of countries to invest in their own defence forces and to invest more in their own defence forces, but that when countries are engaging in that, um, the way in which we maintain 
uh, stability um, and the way in which that becomes a contribution to peace um, is if there is transparency, and that's the key word, where there is transparency around the strategic intent that any country brings to bear in terms of their decisions around the increase of their defence spend. Um, now, we, we, we could not have been more transparent in terms of what we're doing and why we're taking the steps towards what we're doing. Uh, and there has been a huge diplomatic effort really since we came to power to explain why we're moving down the pathway of acquiring a nuclear-powered submarine capability, why we are looking at investing more in our defence force and the kind of uh, capabilities that we seek to acquire and what where, where our strategic intent lies and that that really does lie not with any um, sense of a, aggressive intent at all, but rather lies with a, 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 a desire to make our contribution to the collective security of the region and the maintenance of the rules-based order because those things are so profoundly important to Australia. Um, and I think in, in, in the diplomatic effort, and that's really culminated in the last 10 days as we've made you know, an awful lot of calls uh, to our, uh, you know, the Pacific, ASEAN, but, but Five Eyes partners and others around the world, um, you know, it, we, it's built upon the last few months. We've been able to be consistent with, with our message around our strategic intent. And I think that's understood and accepted. And, and, and in that instance, you're not giving rise to a kind of reaction from others because people know what you're trying to do. Um, in that instance, what you're doing is contributing to the collective security of the region, which is what we're doing. There's obviously been criticism from Beijing this week, but what's your assessment of what this announcement this week actually does or doesn't do to the stabilisation of our relationship with China? Well, I, I think um, what we've sought to do uh, in stabilising the relationship with China is, is firstly to um, be professional, um, remove the kind of um, gratuitous rhetoric that we had seen um, in the years leading up to the last election, um, and to make clear that um, whilst there would be issues that we would always that that, that would be difficult to work through with China. Um, it was, though, fundamentally a relationship that we valued. They are our largest trading partner and that we sought for that relationship to be more productive. Um, and, and that's where that's where we, we sit um, now. Um, you know, China invests, obviously, in its own uh, defence capabilities. We are doing that in respect of ours. Um, in terms of the relationship between our two countries and the way in which we speak to each other and the way in which we engage, um, I, I really do think that, that the, the project of seeking to stabilise that will continue um, and I think will continue largely unaffected by what has been announced um, during the course of this week. On a related point, the Prime Minister this week on Thursday went to Aston and spoke to an event um, with the Chinese-Australian community. What, what thinking have you put to how you talk about these strategic threats without demonising an entire you know, significant part of the Australian population? Well, we're obviously really careful about that. I mean, it's and 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 it's it's right to uh, be completely clear that 
Um, the, the Chinese Australian community uh, are a very proud part of our country. Um, they uh, have contributed enormously to Australia, um, and, and they are very proud Australian, uh, very proud Australians. And um, it's important that we, in public life, acknowledge that, and we do. And I, and I, I think the Chinese Australian community see that in terms of the way in which. Um, we as a government speak and the way in which we um, relate to them. And we, and again, I think mean, that's why it's really important that you don't have um, kind of um, in, inflammatory rhetoric on the international um, stage. It doesn't help in terms of international relations anyway, uh, but, it, but there are risks in terms of how that gets played back domestically when, when that kind of language is engaged in. You know, we couldn't be more opposite to that. You know, we, we've been very sober, very sensible in the way in which we have sought to describe our international relations and we have been nothing other than completely celebratory of the role that the Chinese-Australian community plays within our country. Now I'd like to turn to some of the nuts and bolts of this week's announcement. Um, obviously a high-level political statement by the three leaders, but are there any contracts or intergovernmental agreements sitting underneath it? For example, the $3 billion commitment towards helping the US mostly and UK industrial base over the next few years. Is that locked in? Is there some agreement signed for that? What's, you know, what underlies that? Um, uh, again, a, a good question. Like, uh, I, the real answer to that is that this is a, a shared endeavour of the three countries. And um, it, it, I mean, there is going to be a legal underpinning to this. So I don't want to suggest there won't be, and there is going to need to be a treaty, well, a, a treaty-level document between our three countries. Um, so, so there is a whole lot of legality which will be worked through. Um, but in so many ways, this transcends that. Um, like the 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 sheer size of the decision to share this capability with Australia um, and, and having taken the step of doing that, which we've, which we've done, um, puts all three countries in a position where uh, it, it, this, it, it's, it's too big for it to fail on, on, on the part of any of those countries. In other words, we, 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 are, we are all deeply committed to each other's success in this project. Um, and, and that is actually what really gives the guarantee or, or the underpinning of this occurring. I mean, from there will flow a whole lot of legal documents. Um, but there, there is just a, you know, this must work for the US. This must work for the UK as much as it must work for Australia. And that is a sense that um, is clearly felt in all the conversations I've had with uh, Ben Wallace in the UK, with Lloyd Austin in the US. Um, and, and, and to me, that's what gives me a sense of assurance that this is going to play out in the way that we, we want it to play out. But, um, you know, from here, there is, is a whole lot of work which, which does need to be done in, in terms of um, getting those, um, that, those legal questions right. I suspect there'll be lots of agreements needed, but that treaty level agreement that will be needed, what's the sort of shape of that and how soon would we expect that? Uh, well, again, that will, will be worked through. I don't want to commit to a time frame now. Um, but, um, you know, when the nuclear, nuclear propulsion technology was provided by the United States, the United Kingdom back in the 1950s. Um, it was done ultimately under the basis of a, of a treaty between the two countries. And so that gives you a sense of 
the kind of architecture that's going to need to be in place uh, for that transfer of technology now to happen to us. Um, I mean, obviously, we will be working through this as expeditiously as possible. We, we need to get it right. But nor, to, nor though, does it, 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 it's not like it, it has to be done before we can take the next step. We, we are, we are um, ready to go right now. And that's what really comes back to the, the point I was making before. We, we are so invested in each other's success that we, we can really walk forward with this with a, a, a complete sense of confidence. Uh, and we need to be doing the, we need to be doing the nuts and bolts, the actual doing of this, not just the legal documents. We need to be doing the doing of this as quickly as we can. I guess more on the nuts and bolts, um, this commitment of the US to provide or sell three to five Virginia-class submarines to Australia in the 2030s. At what point is that subject to presidential approval and congressional approval? Is it at the time in the, in the 2030s? So I guess how do you weigh the risk of a future? I know you said too big to fail, but it's not hard to imagine a US president and a US Congress in the 2030s saying, look, we just need to look after our own needs before those of allies, even as close ones as Australia. Like, how do you weigh the risk of providing, you know, help to their... Uh, submarine industrial base and then having a subsequent decision in the 2030s by a different president and a different Congress? Uh, well, um, we we need an answer to the capability gap and, and this is this is an answer to the capability gap. Um, when you talk about weighing the risk, um, it, 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 that implies other alternatives. This is, this is this is what we need to do. Um, I mean, the, what we inherited um, when we came to office was really an answer to the question around the capability gap of solely extending the life of uh, Collins. Now, extending the life of Collins is an important step, but um, on its own, it's, it's not a, uh, a complete answer at all to how we would see an evolving submarine capability for our country through the, the 2030s and into the 2040s. So, so we need this. Um, the, uh, uh, con congressional, well, presidential approval and congressional approval is all being done and sought now. Um, the, uh, I, I th ultimately, I think the answer to your question is we, we are going to need to have bipartisan support for this program in all three countries um, in order for it to ultimately be delivered over the course of decades, precisely because it, it, it is going to be delivered over a period of decades, which, which implies you know, multiple governments. Um, there is bipartisan support here. There is bipartisan support in the United Kingdom. And in the United States, uh, as congressional approval is being sought by um, our American partners, um, there is a gratifying degree of support across the spectrum of US politics now um, in relation to both the Australian alliance um, and the place of Australia in, in America's worldview, but specifically in relation to this arrangement. And, um, and so we do have a sense of confidence that the, uh, the political support across the spectrum in America is in place to see this endure over the course of decades. On the sovereignty issue, you, the Prime Minister, Vice Admiral Mead, have all been unequivocal that, you know, in a strict sense, the Australian submarines commanded and controlled by Australia, and I accept that. But this whole project requires, as you say, support from the three countries over multiple decades. How do you weigh the risk of being so sort of integrated or reliant on that expertise and that assistance from the US and the UK that it actually makes it hard for us to make an independent decision on a future conflict? Uh 
Well, it, it, decisions on any conflicts in the future will be made on their own terms, so that they really are a separate issue from this capability. Um, this capability will be completely sovereign in terms of how we put it to work. As soon as there is an Australian flag on the first of the Virginias, that's an Australian submarine uh, commanded by Australians, and, and the decisions about what it does or what it doesn't do will be made by Australia. Um, we um, operate... Uh, sorry, before I go on there, there are important questions around the the the, uh, the sovereignty of the um, the industrial side of this, um, you know, by which I mean the ability to maintain and sustain the uh, the submarine going forward. Um, in that sense, because you can have um, issues there, which which mean that you know whatever capability you have might get taken out of your hands at some point. What is really clear in this process and the way in which this arrangement has been set up is that we are, uh, in tandem with acquiring the submarine, making sure that we have the uh, capacity in Australia to sustain and maintain it. Um, that's a really critical uh, statement in terms of the sovereignty of the submarine. And then the other point is that being a sealed nuclear reactor, it does not need to be refuelled uh, during the life of the submarine. And so in that sense, um, we, we are able to do the full sustainment on the submarine going forward. So in terms of the industrial architecture around the submarine, I'm really confident that this gives rise to as sovereign a capability as any we have. Um, and then around the... I mean, I made the point about we will make the operational decisions in respect of the submarine. Yeah, we, we do work um, closely with uh, our friends and allies in the way in which we we operate around the world, um, we do that now. Um, we do that now with um, the, our, our Collins-class submarines, but a range of other um, military capabilities that we have. And we think about the sovereignty issues whenever we work closely with our, with our friends and allies. That really won't change going, going forward. At the end of the day, and, and I suppose the sum total of all of that, this will be as much a sovereign asset as any asset that we currently operate, um, and that is profoundly important for the Australian people to understand. Now, there was an Australian National University report called Transparent Oceans that said, you know, it's going to become harder to disguise submarines. Uh, oceans might be likely or very likely to become transparent by the 2050s. How have you satisfied yourself that, you know, these won't become obsolete? I'm sure it's come up. You've you've asked the question. Um, it, it's it, of course, and and uh, you know, there's this tension because on the one hand, you know, a lot of effort is going into um, submarine technology. A lot of effort is going on to illuminating the the seas. And and at the heart of your question is that if the you know if the veil of the sea is ever completely lifted, that that does raise a question about what submarines are for beyond that. And it's a point that I've you know was have, have made a, a lot in previous speeches I've given. But I think at the heart of the thinking around that is, is, I guess, two things. One is it's a dynamic process. So just as there is a lot of effort going into um, illuminating the seas, there is a lot of effort going into creating more stealth around a submarine. Um, and, and, and the second is that the, the, it's obviously relevant the time frame over which this plays. Um, 
you could flip the question and, and, and say, how confident are we that the veil of the sea will be lifted by 2050 such that we don't need a submarine capability? Well, I, that, that, uh, that would be um, a negligently risky call to make on the part of any Australian government. Um, the, 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 you only need to look at the degree to which um, countries around the world are continue to invest in submarine capability and technology to see that uh, where the preponderance of view is, is that submarines are still going to be really useful uh, parts of military capability for decades to come. But precisely because there is an effort to illuminate uh, the sea is, is why um, an, a, a, a submarine capability based on a diesel-electric um, power system um, is going to be, through the, um, the latter part of this decade and into the 2030s, a, a comparatively diminishing capability because uh, more of that will be able to be seen. So, so actually it's precisely because of that consideration that not only do we need submarines but we're going to need high-tech submarines uh, and we're going to need more capable submarines and that implies a nuclear power submarine. Uh, this ends up being the argument exactly for why we need to walk down the path that we are right now. Now, I'm not going to invite you into a back and forth with Paul Keating, but I think possibly one of his strongest points this week was in saying that Labor quickly decided in opposition within 24 hours to sign up to AUKUS, partly to avoid a political wedge. That's fundamentally true, isn't it? Uh, I became the Shadow Defence Minister in 2016. Um, the, the question of our submarine capability has been front and centre in my mind um, since then. That's not measured in one day, that's measured in years. Um, you know, I have given long speeches on, on all the topics that we've been talking about right now. I was there. <laughs> in terms of, well, to the Submarine Institute around the whole question of um, how we think about this in the context of uh, advances in technology around lifting the veil of the sea, um, also um, in, in respect of the way in which uh, the attack class program was initiated, um, what that meant in terms of our competitive uh, tension within those agreements. Um, and, and, and the, the challenges that that presented for the country. So all of these uh, are issues which you know, I've been deeply immersed in uh, you know, since 2016. And obviously all of that was brought to bear um, in the context of um, the, the decisions that we made in, re in relation to the AUKUS announcement. So, I mean, the, the idea that we were kind of, uh, we heard a piece of news um, from, from scratch and then uh, turned it around in 24 hours. Like we, we, yes, we heard a piece of news, but it was against the backdrop of a lot of deep thinking um, in respect of uh, Australia's future submarine capability that we had been undertaking over the course of years, and that's what framed the decision that we made. Uh, Keating also said the French government offered the Australian government a new deal on submarines, new French nuclear submarines, 5% enriched uranium, delivery 2034 fixed price and got no response. Is that true? When did that happen? Uh, well, I, I didn't have any of those conversations with France. Um, and nobody, nobody from the French government put that proposition to you as an alternative to AUKUS. No, and um, the uh, and, and, and I can only obviously speak in terms of the dealings of the Australian government since last May. Um, but uh, you know, again, I think we need to think this through. Um, there's no, I mean. It, it, 
whether or not France would have walked down that path, um, you would not be talking about um, sealed nuclear uh, reactor technology. Um, and therefore, you know, questions of um, uh, sovereignty around the industrial architecture surrounding the submarine um, arise, meaning um, a, a situation where you would need to send a submarine back to be refuelled is a period of time where you become very dependent upon um, the industrial base of another country and your submarine's out of operation. Um, the best sovereign outcome here is the one we're getting. Um, it's, the, it's the best outcome precisely because there's a sealed nuclear reactor and that forms a part of the technology and that means we are not having to send submarines back to be refuelled, which means we have control of them. Um, and so I guess the thing I would really go back to, and, and it comes back to the answer to a previous question, is in thinking this all through, maximising the sovereignty um, of, of our country in respect of this capability was front and centre. Two more issues on the non-proliferation piece. Uh, this week, the Nobel Prize winning international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons said the best way to reassure the region uh, would be for Australia to sign and ratify the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. What's your response to that? Well, we've made our position on that clear um, as well, and we, we understand um, what is sought to be achieved here, and obviously we want a world where there are no nuclear weapons, and Australia has a very proud history in respect of action in relation to uh, nuclear disarmament. Um, we sent observers to the, the conference in respect of that treaty. Uh, one of the issues, though, is we've got to make sure that there is universality in that treaty, um, and that remains the, the, the real issue in respect of it. Um, universality and, and having nuclear powers um, who, who have the nuclear weapons being a part of it is obviously what would need to happen to, to, to have a, a serious impact here. And right now, the nuclear powers are not engaging in, in that treaty. Um, uh, uh, Is that a condition that's too hard to ever meet? Like it's an impossible uh, condition for the Labor policy? Well, it's just to say that a, a meaningful contribution to the removal of nuclear weapons needs to involve the engagement of the countries which have the nuclear weapons. That's, that's the only point we're making. And so we completely get the intent of it and we agree with the intent of it. But um, we, and, and we've made that clear in terms of the policies that we've brought forward. But what the, the treaty needs to seek to achieve is, is universality in terms of those countries signing up to it. So that's, that's the issue. But I think the other point I'd want to make is um, that the architecture um, which has had the biggest impact on reducing nuclear stockpiles in the world today um, is the Non-Proliferation Treaty. Um, it hasn't been perfect, no one's saying that, um, and it's, it's ebbed and flowed in terms of you know, where um, the, the stockpiles of nuclear weapons have gone. Um, but there's about 10% of the nuclear weapons in the world today that they were at the height of the Cold War. The, the Non-Proliferation Treaty has been very important in that, and the Non-Proliferation Treaty has been pretty effective in, in limiting the growth of um, countries which have uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, and so you know, we are very committed to the architecture of the Non-Proliferation Treaty. That's why it's been very much at the heart of um, what we've been doing in relation to the nuclear-powered submarines to make sure that every step we take complies with our obligations under the NPT, um, because it has it, you know, it, it is profoundly important um, for um, the security of the world and, and for the hope of achieving a nuclear-free world.
I just want to close with one issue from the frame of learning from history. I know you've commissioned a parliamentary inquiry into Australia's war powers. Um, Monday marks the 20th anniversary of the Iraq war. Uh, what lessons do you draw from the Iraq war? And do you agree in retrospect that it's that has an enduring impact on how we look at conflict? And do you agree with Simon Crean at the time that it was illegal, unnecessary and unjust? Oh, well, I think the, the, the position that Australia took at the time, uh, or sorry, I think the position that Labor took at the time under Simon Crean, is what I mean to say, uh, has been vindicated. Um, and, um, and and I think that that is clear. And so I definitely support the position that Simon Crean, as our Labor leader, took uh, then. Um, you know, it, it's it, these are really important questions. Uh, the terms on which we um, engage in armed conflict uh, are as well. They end up being as significant a set of decisions as any government uh, can make, and we need to make sure that we get uh, the architecture of that right. Um, and that's what the inquiry is is seeking to do. Deputy Prime Minister, thank you very much for engaging with our audience today. Thank you. This episode was produced by Mel Chun and Alison Chan. The executive producer is Miles Martignoni. The Canberra team of reporters will be back with another episode next week while Catherine Murphy remains on leave. Thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Before Shopify, were you wondering where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen.